Well, again, good morning, welcome, and again, a special welcome back to our students. As I have said in the past, we are a different place when you are not here, and we are a better place when you are here. Uh, so we love to have the return of our college students. And today, uh, at least this weekend, kind of the official end of summer, so we get a nice hot, humid day uh, next couple of days as we round out this Labor Day weekend. And we also come to the end of our summer sermon series in the Psalms. So we began June 1st uh, with Psalm 3. Uh, we end today, August 31st, uh, with Psalm 13. And like all of Scripture, uh, we are always invited into a story, a story much bigger than ourselves, invited on a journey. And Psalm 13 is no different. Invited on a journey from verse 1 to verse 6. A short psalm, and yet much to be seen in this journey. Now, Psalm 13 begins with a familiar question. The question, how long? Now, this question probably gets asked most often throughout the summer months as small children ride in the back seat of cars on their way to vacation. How long until we're there? Are we there yet? How long, Mom and Dad? So, I mean, my own family, six-hour drive uh, to the beach, I think we had left 15 minutes later was the first how long question. And I prayed, how long, oh Lord, must I listen to this? <laughs> you know, soon, uh, students, college uh, students, uh, you will be asking the question, uh, those getting ready to return to middle school and high school this week, that first round of papers and tests and projects, how long, oh Lord, until Thanksgiving break? How long until Christmas? How long? Uh, a lot of folks ask this during the week, maybe midweek. How long until the weekend? Some people ask that question Monday morning. How long until the weekend? And some of you may even ask yourself that question during the sermon today. How long, O oh Lord, must I listen to this preacher? And if that is the case, please, please be dishonest and smile and don't say anything. But seriously, the question how long? This question is central to the human experience. It's a question that expresses our desire to arrive, to rest, to get relief, to be restored. A question most profoundly asked from the, the depths of pain, sorrow, despair. The question how long shows up about 20 times in the book of Psalms. Uh, four times here in our psalm today. Now, David is the author of this psalm, and we don't know exactly what the backdrop is, what was going on in his life at the time that he wrote it. But what we do know, and what you will hear, is that David was feeling abandoned, alone, afraid. Well, before we enter into the journey of Psalm 13, I invite you to pray with me. We look to you this morning, our good, our gracious God. We pray that you would meet us, that you would lead, that you would carry us through this journey, opening up your word to us and us to your word. Lord, that you would speak your gospel deep into our hearts, that it would not merely be information today, but that you would do a transforming works. A transforming work, encouraging and growing us. 
And we ask all of it in Jesus. Amen. So now I invite you to hear the word of God. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of God. For our good and his glory. And so let's turn to it now. Well, like I said, it is a short psalm. And as we enter into it, it's uh, helpful to note the structure. It's a very simple structure. Uh, David has a, a cu- the first couple of verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he's asking that central question that we've talked about a little bit already. How long? And then there's a shift into verses 3 and 4 where he goes from this honest question to an earnest petition, crying out to the Lord, being more direct in the way that he is speaking to God. And then ending, verses 5 and 6, maybe a surprise that he would end here given the beginning of the psalm, but ending anticipating, ending with an expectant joy, rejoicing in the Lord. And so we're going to simply follow David's outline this morning. An honest question, an earnest petition, and an expectant joy. So first, an honest question. Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Hear these words again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long? Now, if you think about it, it's not so much that David is asking for information, but more so that he is expressing the pain of abandonment. Abandonment by God. I mean, that's what David is feeling right here. And it's a crushing weight. A question and a weight that is central to this psalm. We're going to move on for for a moment, but we'll come back uh, to this part of it. Because as we shift into verse 2, David also expresses inner turmoil. Uh, The beginning of verse 2. Also translated, how long must I wrestle with my thought? Must I struggle with anguish in my soul? And you've had those moments. Maybe you went to to bed. Maybe you got to sleep relatively easy. Maybe not, but you were asleep. And then in the middle of the night or the wee hours of the morning, you wake up. 
all of a sudden you wake up and something has got a hold of you. Maybe it's fear, guilt, anxiety, shame. Whatever it is, it has a hold of you and you cannot get rid of it. You can't shake it. Now, it may be that in your experience, in those moments, you, you've gotten up the next morning, had breakfast, showered, and you're able to gain perspective. But in the middle of the night, in the darkness of that moment, you are spinning helplessly. Well, that's a taste of, of what David is going through. Uh, for him, though, it's not just middle of the night, but all day. Every day, turmoil of thought, anguish in his soul. And then David says he is also concerned with his enemies because this is King David. There are those seeking to take his life and take his throne. Now what he's getting at and what we can relate to is the fear of utter defeat. Just being laid flat. I failed. I can't make it. I can't do this anymore. Whether an enemy without or an enemy within, they win, we lose. Game over. And it all begins with feeling abandoned by God. And I want to read this first verse again and remind you that this is David author of many psalms, one who is hailed throughout Scripture, the man after God's own heart. And yet he writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Are you going to forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Well, clearly... David feels that God has, has turned away from him, is no longer looking at him, turned his face the other way, no longer God's favor upon him. What about you? Have you ever felt that way? And maybe you wouldn't describe it in terms of feeling abandoned by God. Maybe more so, I don't know if God really cares especially in those times where you have been seeking to follow God's lead. You have been in prayer. You have been, been trying hard to follow Him, seeking to, uh, seeking to bless Him, to bless others, and then the unthinkable happens. And you just want to say, do you even care? Well, two observations, a couple observations about feeling abandoned by God. Uh, highlighted by Dr. James Boyce, uh, former uh, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Uh, so a couple of, of observations about feeling abandoned by God. Well, one, it's a common human experience. And two, we don't talk about it. It's not talked about very much by Christians. For one, many people feel abandoned, uh, first by others, but ultimately by God. Uh, if you talk to me or Dennis or Ben or anybody that has the opportunity for pastoral counseling, we can tell you that many times this is the case. 
or speak to a, a counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist, have confirmed that there are many who struggle with the anguish of feeling abandoned by God, that he doesn't care. And so that means that it is a spiritual problem as well as a, a psychological and or emotional one. But like I said, we also don't talk about it. A problem often suffered in silence, especially within the church. And why? Why is that? I mean, this should be the place where we are free to be where we are in life, with the struggles, with the ups, with the downs, caring for one another, sharing one another's burdens. But James Boyce answers the question this way. He writes, Well, we have been taught that Christians are not to experience such things, that we are only to have life more abundantly, or to live victoriously. If any of us should admit to such feelings, many of our friends would look suspiciously at us, shake their heads, and wonder whether we are Christians. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't that the chief reason that you don't talk to others about your struggles? And, and it may not be so much that you say, oh yeah, they would think I'm not a Christian but you're afraid maybe they'd look at you and think, eh, not such a good Christian, not, not a strong Christian like I thought he or she was. And so we end up suffering in silence. Uh, many alone as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. More literally, the valley of deep darkness. And it's a tragic place to be alone. Now, fortunately, uh, many more are talking much more openly uh, about the valley of deep darkness these days, uh, especially in the, in the last uh, couple of weeks since famed actor and comedian Robin Williams unexpectedly took his life. Uh, the web went wild with, with people beginning to talk about the depths of their struggles and, and what it means and where to find help and what is darkness and depression and despair people began talking. And then, of course, that really hits home here. And just a few days ago, the tragic loss of a student at the college. And yet my understanding is, if you were to see the student on the outside, this guy had it all together. I'd like to be like him. A senior who was recognized and liked. An officer in his fraternity played Club lacrosse, in fact, was the president of that club this past year, and yet suffered in silence. We found out too late, because he too took his own life. David wants us to be honest. In fact, I should make it bigger than that. God wants us to be honest about where we are. For one... It's in his word. It's in the prayer book, the song book of God's people. That the one who so many times led the people of God into worship would cry out, How long must I walk through the valley of deep darkness? Are you there? Do you care? And so David challenges us here. 
Can we as the church be more open and honest with the struggles in life? Can we be more honest? And then, can you, will you be honest like David? Will you make the shift here with David as well? Because honestly, I get caught up in verses 1 and 2, and that's typically where I would end the psalm. How long? Throw my hands up, walk away. Done. And a lot of you stop there as well. But let's follow David on his journey through Psalm 13. Because what is it to recover a sense of God's presence, his care, that he really is there? How do we get there? Well, let's see what David does. Now, the second part of the psalm, David moves from the honest question to the earnest petition of verses 3 and 4. Hear these words again. Consider me. Answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David calls out to the Lord. David cries out, look to me. Turn to me, answer my cry, give light to my eyes. David is, is turning to the God that he feels has turned away. And very pointedly says, speak to me, I am speaking to you. Now maybe you say, yeah, but that's just not where I am. I get called in verses 1 and 2. I, I, if God doesn't care, why would I want to waste my time talking to him in the first place? I can't do that. That's not the kind of faith that I have to pray that. Well, remember, faith is not primarily about you. Faith is a gift, a gift from God. And if he's given it to you, then you've got it. So let's find it. Because it's in there. And it's found in the logical disconnect between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4. Yes, you heard me correctly. The logical disconnect between these verses. Because in a lot of ways, they don't make sense. I can't say it any better than Pastor and Professor uh, Ralph Davis of uh, Reformed Theological Seminary who writes this, and I encourage you to hear these words and to enter in uh, to what he is writing here. But he says, let's trace the psalm so far as if it has been you who has been praying. So you pray and pray, and God doesn't pay attention. He hides his face, you say. You plead and cry, and there is no relief. So what do you do? You keep on praying, of course. And to whom? To the God who has not heard. Is there any other? This is lousy logic, but it's excellent faith. You bemoan a God who is not paying attention to you, and then in the next breath you nevertheless plead for him to pay attention to you. Do you see it? 
There may be times when faith does not have its reasons, but it still has its reactions. And he goes on to call this the instinct of faith. Later we'll call it a spiritual knee-jerk reaction. Which he argues points to its true evidence that there really is faith in you. You didn't reason it, it just reacted. You believe God's turned away, and yet you turn to Him and cry out. The spiritual knee-jerk reaction, even at the lowest, darkest moments, when you wonder if faith even exists. Do you see? After the despair of verses 1 and 2, you simply keep calling out to God. You simply can't leave Him. You can't get away from Him. You must be His then. You must be His. He is with you. He is for you. He has given you faith to call out, to cry out, Lord, I want to see you. Show yourself to me. It's the instinct that faith follows. And there are many throughout Scripture uh, who follow David in this. Uh, One that that came to mind was the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter and the disciples, a moment when they are with Jesus and life is difficult, the teaching is difficult. They're trying to figure out, do I really want in on this? This seemed good at first. And Jesus says, so do you too want to leave? Do you too want to leave? And I imagine Peter just kind of throwing his arms up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, to whom shall we go? I don't know how this is going to play out, but there is nobody else I can think of to go to. You have, in fact, you are the word of eternal life. We cry out of the valley of deep darkness. Look on me. Answer my cry. Give light to my eyes. And this is really what we're praying. We're praying, O Lord, awaken my heart to the reality of your presence. Because I know that you're there, but I'm still not convinced of it. Awaken me, O Lord, light up my eyes. My physical eyes are blind, but but light up the eyes of my heart that I may live by faith and not by sight. Give me the eyes of faith that I may be sure of what I hope for and certain of what I do not see. And out of that earnest petition, a turn takes place. Maybe not immediately, but it takes place nonetheless. It's easy to to read the Psalms as if they were all written in one sitting. Uh, I often think of the Psalms, like David's Psalms, more like a journal. One day he sits down, maybe writes the first couple of verses. That's just where he is. I don't know how long it took him to get to verses 5 and 6. But eventually, at some point, a turn takes place. So the final section of Psalm 13. Lastly, an expectant joy, uh, verses 5 and 6. Now please follow along as I read these again. 
but I, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, clearly a turn has taken place. And the turning point is at the beginning of verse 5. But, but I. It's an emphatic pronoun. And often emphatic pronouns signal a turn, a turnaround. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Now, before we have read David and he has said, but you, O Lord. And here he says, but I, and it could easily begin to make you think, but I, is he turning inward? But this is about me? No. David is not turning inward, but he is turning his attention to God's love. I have trusted in your steadfast love. The turn is this, in the words of Derek Kidner. David turns his attention not to the quality of his faith, but to the object of it. Not to the quality, not to how great or how little, how fleeting it seems, but to the object of it. And the object of his faith is God. More specifically here, God's steadfast love. Many of you know that this phrase, steadfast love, comes uh, from the Hebrew word hesed. uh, Translated elsewhere as loving kindness or unfailing love. This is a a, a word, a a love that it's really hard, at least for me, to really understand, to really get. Because it is so amazing and so far beyond what I could imagine. It is a dependable, committed, sustaining, assuring love. And David says, I have trusted in your dependable, committed, sustaining, assuring love. And I was try- as I was trying to get my, my heart and my mind around this particular part of the psalm, uh, I was reminded of September 11th, 2001, uh, 9-11, World Trade Center Towers. Uh, and I was reminded of two men, uh, best friends. Uh, they worked together, same company, same tower, same floor, In fact, they worked in the same office on that floor. And their office was located somewhere in the middle of their particular tower. And wherever it was, it was far enough down that uh, wherever the plane hit above them, there was still enough time for that level for them to to all get out, to evacuate. And so that's what began to happen. Uh, The elevators were out, but uh, men and women began flocking out of those offices and down the stairs evacuating. And so these two friends sitting near each other, and the one, of course, jumps up and rushes over to his other friend who is still sitting at his desk. The friend sitting at his desk looks up and says, you need to go now. And the friend standing looks down at his friend sitting, bound in a wheelchair, and says, I am not leaving you. You will not be alone. It's a dependable committed, sustaining, assuring love. A love that refuses to ever let go, no matter what the cost. 
It's a beautiful love. You know, this is a love that you are familiar with when David celebrates it at the end of probably the most famous psalm, Psalm 23. Having come out of the valley of the shadow of death, of deep darkness, having come out at the very end, David proclaims, surely goodness and steadfast love. Surely goodness and steadfast love will follow me, will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And then here, Psalm 13, David declares, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I have banked my life on it. There is nothing else. Your love is always there, unmovable, unshakable. It's all I've got, and it's everything. And David begins to rejoice. He begins to rejoice, but he also does something else. He also looks ahead, knowing that one day he'll see the fullness of joy. And that brings us to the end of Psalm 13's journey. The last verse, verse 6. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, you might not see it at first glance, but if you take a close look at verse 6, maybe you'll see what David does. Because David goes to the future, and then he looks back. It's called the prophetic perfect tense. The prophetic uh, perfect. It's a verb tense used by prophets in the Old Testament, a literary technique that refers to future events in past tense. Did you hear that? Referring to something that will happen in the future, but referring to it as if it already has happened. And so David declares, he has dealt bountifully with me. David is looking ahead into the future with the eyes of faith, knowing that God has not only dealt bountifully with him throughout his life so far, but also that God will have dealt bountifully with him in the future and for all eternity. David knows that he will sing one day for having been able to look back for having been able to see the fullness of God's salvation. And we get to see something more clearly than David was able to see. We look back. We look back now with the eyes of faith, seeing more clearly God's salvation, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And when we truly see him, our hearts can't help but sing. And sing with joy. And we also look ahead. Look ahead into the future. For today we see in part. But one day. One day friends. We shall fully see. That's good news. Until then. Until then we anticipate his return. With an expectant joy. A joy that he surprises us with even in the deepest, darkest moments. Knowing that we will sing when all things are made new. Because he has dealt bountifully with us 
in Jesus. And so friends, look to him. Trust in him. Trust in his steadfast love. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that it is that it is a sure thing, unmovable, unshakable. Lord, we pray that you would convince our hearts more and more of it, that we would rejoice more and more, realizing, understanding, believing that you have dealt bountifully and that you will have dealt bountifully with us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.